My guest this week is an Oscar-winning Scottish director, equally at home in the realms of fact and fiction. Kevin MacDonald won his Academy Award for One Day in September, but has also won widespread critical acclaim for films such as Marley, The Last King of Scotland, How I Live Now and State of Play. He's collaborated with some tremendous composers along the way, including John Hopkins and Alex Heffis, of which more later. But we start with his latest project, Whitney, a gut-wrenching documentary about the ill-fated singer, featuring candid interviews with those closest to her, as well as plenty of her music. Kevin and I talk about all of this in depth with, we hope, some really fascinating insights into his process. Whitney is scored by Adam Wiltsey, who Kevin got on board after temping the film with music from Adam's band, Stars of the Lid. Indeed, he liked the temp so much, he even kept a couple of tracks in, including a meaningful moment through a meaningless process. Welcome to Soundtrack and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Nice to be here. Um, there's a lot to talk about with you when it comes to, to music and we're going to start right here if that's alright with Whitney. Congratulations on this film. I just said to you it took me at least a day to recover from seeing this film and I mean, that, I mean that in a good way because I don't think enough film kind of punches you in the gut quite like this did. Um, it's an upsetting story. It is. I think there's, I think there's something about seeing somebody's life and kind of fast forward from when they're this beautiful, innocent, wonderfully talented person to when they're destroyed and they're a kind of shadow of themselves. And seeing that in the course of two hours somehow reminds us all of our, of our mortality in a kind of terrible way. But also, I think the part that I always find so upsetting is really about her relationship with her daughter. And I think if you've got children, that's really kind of hard to hard to handle but also I think you understand why she does that but it's but you know, it doesn't make it any easier. Mm. I was lucky enough to be at a screening that you introduced and and you told us there and then of, of the reason and why you wanted to make this film which yeah. was which was kind of after speaking to her agent and her agent asking a question really is that right? Yes her agent who was called Nicole David who knew her I think probably better than anyone else in the kind of professional world outside mm. of her family and close friends and uh, represented her from, I think, 1985, when she first started, right to her death. And she said, I loved Whitney more than any other client I ever had, but I never understood her, and I still don't to this day understand why what happened to her happened. And I thought that was so, such a remarkable thing for somebody who was so close to Whitney to say mm. that, that, that they didn't understand, and that, that was why she just said, well, you've got to make this film. Because up to that point, I was a bit like, is there really much to say about Whitney Houston? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, you know, what, what what there is to say, and it was it was that combined with then reading an article about in the New Yorker about Whitney's performance of the Star Spangled Banner in 1991, and how that kind of changed forever people, the way people sang and understood the American national anthem. Mm. And I thought, well, that's that's an achievement. So it was those two things that led me to think, oh, actually, there is a really interesting film. Here. 
talk about that Star-Spangled Banner performance, but also the way that um, racism, cultural references, mm. all that kind of thing came into her world without mm. her, her asking for it or needing it or mm. actually understanding it. There was a lot put on her, wasn't there? And a lot yeah. that she had I, to deal with in that respect. I think one of the things that made this quite a difficult film to make was that Whitney's story in some ways is quite simple and she wasn't a great, I don't think she had a, had a great understanding, as you said yourself, of why what was happening to her was happening to her and what mm. was going on around her. I don't think she was not in any way sort of intellectual or academic. She Everything came from the gut. But she was born in Newark, which is a sort of, uh, for, for, the, for the black struggle, an iconic place in America. And the, she was three or four years old when the, when the Newark riots happened, which hollowed out Newark, which had been this amazingly wealthy city and turned it into a place that's a kind of, for many years, was a kind of war zone. Mm. And again, emblematic of the, of the struggle between the races in America. And then she went on to be the first performer to, uh, uh, to play for Nelson, the first foreign performer to play for Nelson Mandela after the end of apartheid. She had the first sort of big commercial movie on-screen interracial kiss with Kevin Costner. All of these things, but in some way you feel like she's a bit oblivious. She's just moving through this. So, yeah, her story is simple on one level. On the other level, there's all these influences, mm -hmm. all, of, all of this context that you want to get in. And that's what made it a hard film to make, because when it's all about context, when you can't understand that simple thing that happens without explaining this and explaining gospel music and explaining Newark and explaining um, her mother's backing singing career or whatever, that becomes not a documentary, it becomes a kind of encyclopedia, which is not that interesting to watch. And not having the person to ask. Exactly. An answer well, it's to the, question. I mean, that's the thing is that it's sort of, she didn't give many great interviews. So you don't have many of her words to sort of lean on and you don't have even songs that she's writing in an autobiographical way because most of the songs should be written by other people. Yeah. So I, I was very envious of the people who made the Amy Winehouse film because you know they had this they not only had all this footage because it was in the <laughs> era of the phone with you know the digital yeah. camera but also they had songs which are so such direct expressions of how she's feeling. Whitney at every stage is sort of putting up barriers to your understanding I think sort of almost it feels quite deliberately, you know, she yeah. just doesn't want to let anyone in. And I think the reason for that is because she doesn't know who she is herself and she's struggling to figure herself out and she doesn't want people to know that. There were times when I would look up at the garden and I'd go, why is this happening to me? And then these dreams. I would have these dreams about being on a bridge and a bridge going back and forth and swaying. Some big storm coming. I'm always running from this giant. I'm always running from this big man. I know I can make it. I know I can make it. I know I can make it. My mother always says, well, you know, that's nothing but the devil. You're just trying to get you. He just wants your soul. <laughs> and in a sense, it's true. There's been several times the devil is trying to get me. But he never gets me. It is funny, when I wake up, I'm always exhausted from running. What were your thoughts before going into the film and what were they coming out? I think going, when I first was approached to do the film, I was quite dismissive of her, actually. And I thought a friend of mine, a producer who I really respect, who came to me with the idea, so I wasn't outright dismissive of it, but, <laughs> um, but I, was, I, I kind of had the feeling that I think a lot of people have about her, which is that, she's this kind of 
tabloidy headline, isn't she? Yeah, so sort of tabloidy, superficial, undeserving of our sympathy or our understanding because of you know she chose to become an addict. It's, it's always hard to feel sympathy for addicts. Actually, it's something about about that disease it makes it very hard for people to to, to sort of sympathise because it's something to do with the way that you're doing it to yourself over mm. and over and over again. Yeah. So I guess I had that feeling. I wasn't a huge fan. I liked her music. You know, I grew up in the eighties. And um, I like the music. I couldn't avoid it, <laughs> and you still can't avoid it. And then, you know, yeah. there's, some, there's some of his, her songs that I really like, but I was, I was in no way I was, was a fan. And by the end of it, I was a fan actually, and I kind of grew to really appreciate what she was able to do at her best with her voice. And I think at her best, unfortunately, was relatively few years mm. before the, the the lifestyle began to affect her. But I do think that she had an amazing, amazing gift for emotional communication. And it was actually, I did have a section in the film, which I took out for length reasons, but there was a section about, you know, the question, what is it that makes a voice great? What is it that makes a voice communicate so much emotion as mm. hers does? That's not verbally communicating that emotion, it's the non-verbal act of just sort of opening up your throat and singing. And I talked to her voice coach, and I talked to some of the producers she'd worked with and things. But actually, in the end, you can't really articulate that. You can say, you can say, well, her voice is, is, expresses a lot of emotions you couldn't express in any other way. You can say that she had had a very rich emotional life, that she was very sensitive, all this. But it kind of becomes a bit banal, actually. Mm -hmm. A great voice that communicates great emotion. What can you say that the voice can't? Yeah, and it's such a personal reaction that you have as a person to yes. something that resonates with you like that, I think, as well. When you were thinking about the music for this yes. film, there's obviously her catalogue of music, but you worked with a composer who I'm a massive fan of because of his collaborations. He's worked with, he worked with Johan Johansson, yes. um, Adam. Is it Wilt? Wilt? Can you say his name properly? Because I can't say. I think his name is Adam Witsey. Witsey. But, Adam, but yeah. you know what? I don't actually know. And funnily enough, I've never met him. I was going to meet him last night. Yeah. He was in London. He lives in Belgium, of yeah. all places. And. Uh, He's, he's part of a duo, a band, a duo, electronic duo called Stars of the Lid. Yeah. And he also does work for film yeah, on, 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 on his own and collaborates with Johan Johansson and various other people. Yeah. And, uh, but we did everything by email and by <laughs> Skype. I've never actually met Damn him. you, technology. And he was in, he was in town <laughs> last night. But it was a funny thing because that music, obviously it's a hard thing when you're making a film about a musician yeah. to have other music in yeah. there. And so it, it felt like it needed to be something very different and very much of now and very much saying, this is the film's music, not her music. Mm -hmm. This is sort of commenta commentary music in a way rather than, rather than music you're meant to be appreciating. And I started using some of Adam's music that he'd done for Stars of the Lid, just as temp track. Yeah. And then I employed a composer and what he did just didn't work. And it's the, I mean, I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of yeah. filmmakers, this has happened, and you think, oh, God, how, what, what, what am I going to do? And then I tried another composer. And again, there was something about the way that Adam is able to produce uh, an unspecified but very strong emotional reaction in a really minimal way, mm -hmm. uh, which is really hard to do. It sounds very simple, that music, but actually it's really idiosyncratic and, and, and unique and quite emotional, actually. Yeah. And so um, I went to him and I said, will you compose the film? <laughs> And luckily, he had time. We used a few of the original tracks from Stars of the Lid that we had tempted with, and then he wrote new material. And I think it's really, it's really, it's really successful. And, and um, it's a very unvain thing for a composer to do because you're sort of invisible yeah. when you're doing a film about a, 
about a musician. Everybody, nobody's coming out thinking, oh, what a great score. They're coming out thinking, oh, I like, I want to dance with somebody, an a cappella version. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so, so, yeah, no, it was great. And I'd, I'd, um, it was a really, a really so maybe because it was a remote, <laughs> remote relationship, it was a really pleasant and, and, uh, and, easy, and easy collaboration. I think he's quite used to doing that. I think a lot of the stuff he does is done remotely, yeah. actually. But you write about that kind of that that minimalist thing that has a big impact. Mm. It's really hard to do, and, mm. and you know, from his work on Arrival and the Theory of Everything, mm. he worked with Johan, mm. and then he also did some of the stuff in the Lion soundtrack yes. as well. Yeah. Worked on that, which you know I think really gets to the heart and really complements the I want to dance with somebody. Well, you, know? you don't yeah. well, you, you don't really associate that kind of minimalist music with emotion. Mm. You think it's all going to be quite cold and you know ethereal, mystical, or something, but not not actually emotional, but somehow or other he has got, I mean, Lion soundtrack in particular, I mean, I couldn't say, tell you what he did and what yeah, Johan, yeah, Johansson no. did, but that soundtrack, without being schmaltzy and, and overly emotional, is really heart-wrenching, isn't mm. it? Yeah, and God's Own Country, I think he did as well. I don't know that one. It's a great little British film from last year. Right. Really, really fantastic, actually. Right, I don't know that one. Um, but you've, you've done Marley, obviously, mm. from a few years back, which was yes. a, another brilliant, Thank documentary you. about you know someone that we all weirdly this morning my five-year-old had their school show and sang three little birds <laughs> uh, so I was kind of like oh it's just so weird kind of coming to talk to you today about it but you know that's a that's the but legacy I think it's a similar of sort of thing though in a way that those that those two artists they are absolutely ubiquitous and you hear Whitney all the time, you know, you go to a coffee shop, she's on, you, you know, you, you, you go to a coffee weddings. shop, you Marley, you weddings, <laughs> well, the royal wedding <laughs> was played, I want to dance with somebody, it was the first dance. Was um, it? Yes, it was the first dance Were you of the there? recent royal wedding. I wish I could say I was, no, I wasn't, but I, it was reported the <laughs> okay. next day in the papers and somebody, somebody <laughs> sent it to me. I love that you picked that. And, and, but it's like Marley, I mean, I'm, when I was making the Bob Marley documentary, I, I used to sort of, you know, become hyper-conscious of the music, obviously, but I used to count the number of times I heard the music just the course of a day mm -hmm. in an ad, in a TV show, in a shop that you walk into, in a coffee shop, in a restaurant. And, and you can easily get into double figures. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So, so there's the similar kind of ubiquitous uh, cultural impact, but actually because it's so ubiquitous, you don't necessarily question it or, mm -hmm. or ask questions about the person. And, I, and, and that's one of the things, I guess, that attracts me to this sort of film, is you taking somebody who has become bland because they're so ubiquitous and, and you try and make them human again and make them interesting again as people yeah. um, and not treat them like a sort of hero or a god, but just treat them as a person. Yeah. With, with Whitney, you know, there's the, the access that you got to, to this collection of people. I'm sure that there are those you spoke to that, that didn't make it in mm. the film sort of thing, but 
you know, in terms of finding the narrative of this film and how you wanted to tell that narrative, was it quite easy to navigate? It was really hard. I think it was the hardest documentary, the hardest film I've ever made. Really? Because she just hid herself away and there wasn't much interesting material, interviews with her or um, anything like that. And just finding little bits of archive here and there, it was sort of piecing it together very, very slowly. And it did just feel often like it was the kind of an inquest into somebody's death or something. This mm -hmm. was like, you know, the, the interviewees were there sort of giving testimony. Somehow. They're so protective. They're so protective. Well, it's an interesting thing that people just loved her. Even though to outsiders, I think it was hard to love her at a certain point. Everybody, everybody immediately close to her and around her really, really had this deep love. And all the men, I, fe I felt, were actually had been in love with her and all had fantasies about mm. wishing they'd rescued her and swept her up and taken her away. Wouldn't have happened if I had been there. You know, that sort of thing. And the women all just adored her in a way. And, and you know, that's an unusual combination to have both sexes you know, really feeling so protective and, and adoring of her. So she, there was something about her, and I think maybe the vulnerability and, the, and her own uncertainty that inspired this sort of devotion yeah. from people. But it was very, very hard. I interviewed more people in this film than I have in anything else I've ever done, you know, that's been interview-based. I think over 70 people, and maybe there's like only less than half that are in the film, but it was so hard to get people to open up because they're all feeling guilty and protective or mm. whatever it is. And some of the people I even went back and interviewed two, three, four times to get them to um, get them to talk more, particularly the brothers, the two Whitney's two brothers. And in a way, that's what the film became about. It became about a kind of family story of yeah. two brothers, a mother, a father, you know, and, and the kind of this, the terrible destructive dynamic that they create together. I like that you kept yourself in it. Mm. There's not lots of times, but there's a few times that like mm. there's a time with Bobby Brown yes. where you're trying to push him, you're kind of trying yes. to get an answer from him, and I think with her mum as well. And I really like that you kept yourself. Well, I wanted in to. Be, I wanted the audience to feel like some of the journey that I went on, or the frustrating journey I sometimes went on, <laughs> of trying to ask people questions who they don't want to answer. Oh, we've all been there. It. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and actually, there's something intriguing about. I realised that I thought that there was something intriguing about putting that in, especially because. In a way, as I said, it became, I guess if there was a shape that I found, and it did take a long time to find, find a shape, and I think maybe it's still a little shapeless, but the, 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 the shape that I found was a kind of investigation. And therefore, you know, I'm the detective by default. And we do sort of reach a point mm. three quarters of the way through the film where we get a sort of an answer to a lot of the questions that are maybe hanging in the air earlier on. And so, and that interview, which I, which I, which, which I got right at the very end, wow. two weeks before I, two weeks before I locked the cut, I thought, well, I've been through this incredible journey for a year and a half, and I'm not just going to sort of put this, <laughs> this, this sort of revelatory interview, you know, at the beginning or make, you know, I want the audience to feel a little bit of what I went through, which was, I go through the film thinking one thing about this person, and then at a certain point, it turns on its mm. head, and I have to revise what I've thought. Um, and I know some people have said to me they thought that, that it's a bit manipulative and... Um, oh no, uh, I don't think so but, at all. But it's, but it's uh, my question to them back is that I don't know where el how else you would do it as well in a way that would be satisfying. And it's the, it's the tension, the interesting tension making films about, well, any kind of documentaries, but real people, documentaries about real people, mm. celebrities, whatever, um, is the getting the balance between um, kind of history and truth and r revealing things 
and making an entertaining film. Yeah. And that's a very difficult thing to get. And it's, sometimes it feels like you're making, when I did the Marley film, it felt a little bit like, you know, I had this responsibility. This was going to be the big film about this amazing, huge cultural figure. And I better put everything in, and I better put everyone in. <laughs> and it became two hours and 40 minutes long and kind of a bit crazy. So you're sort of, I was, I was kind of foregrounding the kind of factual and, and sort of information side of it more than the story side of it in a way. And in this film, I think the same thing sort of started to happen. It became a feeling of, you know, I can't be irresponsible just to make a kind of entertaining story, an entertaining film out of this. Actually, you need to give the context. You need to give um, a little bit of explanation for things in a way that maybe is a bit more than people are used to. Yeah. I was totally knocked out. Woo! Oh, you miss something if you don't see her lie. There were times when I would look up to God and I'd go, why is this happening to me? I come from a family of singers. My mom, she was a little tough on Whitney because she knew what Whitney had. There were always a lot of secrets. When you don't resolve things and you don't deal with things, they never go away. Tell me about Robin Crawford. Robin was her safety net. Bobby was jealous. His heart was, he wanted to be on the stage. He wanted to be in the forefront. And eventually, she stepped down to lift him up. People think it's so easy. And it's not. You got class, you got for a whole new world. Now, one thing, Paula Abdul ain't shit. That girl is singing off-key, on the record. I don't really need to look. Why didn't Sissy do more? What was Whitney's drug of choice? What was it that drove them apart? How much do you think you spent? Did John ever try and get rid of Robin? Were they in love? You must have known about the drug use. I never knew there was any addiction. Do you think she understood herself? I, don't wanna... I had fun, and that's all that matters. Hearing her sing the Star Spangled Banner, she made people proud that they were Americans. Don't you die. I love you, Whitney. She was beautiful. I'm singing music from my heart. Heart. If I don't love you. I read this really lovely thing um, when you were talking about Marley and kind of where the, the seed mm. of, of wanting to do it stemmed mm. from was when we were filming The Last King of Scotland mm. and this imagery of him being everywhere, you know, in mm. the most remote parts. Yeah, I mean, that was amazing. Him. I remember in, we were in Uganda in Kampala um, filming The Last King of Scotland and some of the local actors took me to their house one night, and which was in a kind of slum area and on the walls everywhere was kind of images of Bob Marley and, and, and sort of Rasta lions and stuff. And it really stuck with me. There were quite a few, there were quite a few Rastas in 
in, 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 in Uganda. And I, thought that, you know, I thought the whole point of Rastafarianism was about returning to Africa, but these people already live in Africa. <laughs> and you sort of realize that it's a sort of metaphorical version of Africa. You know, it's a return to a, to a past time, to a sort of a, a mythical sense of Africa, rather, it's a spiritual Africa rather than a literal one. And, um, uh, and then, you know, as with the music, you realize it's everywhere. You realize his imagery, his iconography is every, everywhere. Yeah. You know, and, that, and, and what does it represent? It represents some sort of freedom, and uh, release from oppression uh, for people who feel really like they're, 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 they're the downtrodden of the world. And he speaks to them mm. to say things are going to get better. Don't worry, you know, God's going to look after you. And that is such a powerful message. And I think it's, it's also kind of a unique message because he can say it as someone who's born in the third world, is born in a you know, basically a mud shack and sleeping on an earthen floor. He's not, you know, even if the Beatles are you know, born in working class Liverpool, they all had TVs and, yeah. <laughs> and central heating and whatever else. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a different, he can speak to the dispossessed of the world in a way that, that no other artist can because um, he really was from that background. And still doing it. Yeah. For five-year-olds at a school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that with the Marley soundtrack, you have that version of German that had never been released yet. Yes, that was, that that was, was one, wonderful. That was one of the great, great things about doing that, you know, getting to listen to these real rarities. helping us get all the rare versions of things, a cappella versions of things. And, and he came in one day and said, the, 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 great, the greatest unknown, unplayed record that would go for the most amount of money is Bob's first recording. There were only two of these singles made, and one was destroyed, and it's one of these is of great mythology of the record collecting world. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's his first song. And uh, he said, I have it, and you can have it. You can have it in the film for $50,000, I think it was, or something outrageous. And so then he said to me, I'll, I said, well, I need to listen to it. And he said, well, okay, I'll let you listen to 12 seconds. I think I negotiated it up from six seconds to 12 seconds. And, and then I, he came in with a, with a little discman with the thing on it, and then he said, I said, got my headphones. He said, no, 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 you can't use your headphones because you might be recording it. So he was, you have to use my headphones, listen to it. <laughs> and, um, and it didn't sound that great, actually, to be honest. It was very <laughs> terrible, rec terrible recording. But there's something about the mystique of these lost songs. Yeah. You've worked with some amazing composers. John Hopkins, who you worked with on, on How I, I Live Now. Yeah, I think he did a beautiful, John's beautiful soundtrack <sighs> on that. I wish. I've tried to persuade him to do other things with me, but he's, he's now become this sort of huge star. Yeah, he's like this kind of, I mean, I watched him headline the Glade stage at Glastonbury a couple of years ago and it was 
It's incredible. Well, it's what's also quite funny about that is that he's quite a kind of low-key, shy yeah. sort of guy. He's a geek. He's a geek, and now he's, <laughs> but he's become this superstar geek, and, yeah. you know, he, and he's got a unique, again, he uses, he uses electronica in a really unique and specific authored kind of way. You yeah. know, it's only, his work only sounds like it could be made by him. Um, I wanted him to do How I Live Now because he had done the collaboration in now it's going a diamond mine. Is that what it's yeah, called? With, diamond um, mine King with Creasel. King Creasel, yeah. that's it. Is. Kenny yes, Anderson. That's right. He did yeah. that he did that collab you sound a bit like him actually. You're that's because we're from town. the same village. You really are. Yeah. So, well you do sound the same, yeah. there you go. So yes, I mean, I'd loved that collaboration and the way that John's kind of use of electronica was able to encompass sort of that folky sound, yeah. that very organic homemade sound. And the two things you would think would be absolutely opposite actually blended so beautifully. I loved that album. And what I was trying to do with How I Live Now, the film, was to kind of make a kind of dystopic version of the English countryside, you know. And so it's kind of the, one of the inspirations musically is Nick Drake. So. He seemed like he's the electronica Nick Drake somehow, John. And, I love um, that. But yeah, no, he's 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 brilliant. I, I, I've 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 tried a couple of times to get him to do other things. He's just he's always headlining some <laughs> huge festival somewhere around the world. <laughs> 
Do you like having the composer on board as early on as possible in the production? Is that yes? I mean, I've, of, I've often worked like that, and, and it's, those have been my happiest experiences with composers. Is actually, you don't want to use temp music because mm. as soon as you start using temp music, you fall in love with it, and often mistakenly, I think, in a way, and it's very hard to get it out of your head and what it does to the picture because it's that magical joining of sound and picture that don't you know. It's the one plus one equals five. You know, you have music, you have image, they're both fine on their own, put them together and oof, suddenly it's amazing and, and says so much more. And if you've done that with temp music, it's very hard to get your head out of it. Mm. And I think that yeah, the, the happiest experiences I've had with composers when in a way they haven't been composing to picture and you just, either they're doing it in advance yeah. or they're doing it as you're editing and maybe they've seen some scenes but they're not saying I'm writing this for this scene and that's how John worked on um, storytelling on the isn't it? Yes yeah. exactly and he's responding emotionally to having read the script and maybe been on the set or maybe seen a couple of scenes and he wrote I can't remember like three four five themes mm. and that basically became the music that was all done basically at the you know the first. and then there were various bits that had to be you know dramatic music or whatever that have to be shaped to the picture but in terms of the sort of real heart of the music it's done done in advance and that, that was actually the same with Touching the Void and, and Last Coast Scotland which Alex, Alex Heffies did that, that a lot of it was composed thematically composed yeah. in, ad, in advance of the film. Going back to Last King of Scotland though when, you, when, you're, when you're looking <coughs> at the music for that and you know obviously location and the setting mm. of that uh, do you think about the influence that you want the music to have around you know the, the environment Does that, did that come into the conversations with Alex in terms of with yes. that particular score? Well, it was incredible. I remember um, uh, early on, one of the when I was casting the movie, I had to find a, a local singer to sing a the idea. The concept was they're singing a kind of pop song of the period, mm. but in a totally Ugandan way, and it was this sort of clashing of cultures. And uh, I found this amazing local singer who was who has a beautiful voice. It was one of a very memorable experience. I had this literally line of about six or eight local musicians who sort of lined up to come and sort of audition for it. It was like an early X Factor kind of thing. And I sat there and I was just blown away by it. I mean, just they would just stand in front of you and start singing, boom, in this way that in Britain nobody would actually <laughs> or could be able to. And, and, and you'd feel a bit embarrassed if they did. So this, this, this woman came and she sang and then we thought, okay, what song are we going to can we use and and I think it was, I can't remember if it was her idea or my idea but we came up with me and Bobby McGee and she did a fantastic Ugandan version of me and Bobby McGee. Busted flat in buttoned boots, waiting for a train, and I was feeling nearly as fitted as my jeans. Bobby thumbed a dissent down just before it rained. It rode us all the way to New Orleans. I pulled my hapon out of my dirty red bandana I'm playing soft while Bobby sang the blues, yeah Windshield wiper slapping time I'm holding Bobby's hand in mine We sang every song that driven you, yeah Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose Nothing, don't mean nothing, honey, feed and free, no, no Feeling good was easy, Lord, when he sang the blues. Feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. Good enough 
And it was something about that clash of clash of cultures that was the inspiration, I think, then for the for the music for for Alex and we. You know, everybody we found locally who had an interesting sound or mm. something unique, we rec just recorded them. And if you listen on the soundtrack to that, you can hear it's all recorded outside in a kind of like an outdoor auditorium that there is, which is the only place we could find to record. And so you can hear traffic and birds and animals, you know, goats and things in the background, That's which great. actually is rather lovely. It yeah. gives it a whole flavor of its own. You got this sort of subliminally the feeling of Kampala there in the music. One last thing I want to ask you about is yeah. taking you back to State of Play and yes. directing Russell Crowe's vocal performance. <laughs> that opening scene. Well, that opening scene, <laughs> that opening scene in, in, was not in the script. Uh, I, uh, I. That doesn't surprise me. No, I was, I, I was, I was uh, driving with Russell. I think it was another sequence with. Uh, we, we had this old Saab, which. Um, uh, I thought it would be a great idea to give his character and it kept breaking down and we were driving around Washington trying to do some sort of just driving shots and then me and the DP and him in this Saab that kept breaking down and he kept shouting and cursing and uh, when we weren't filming he was playing that song and I thought that's rather great and also I wanted to give I wanted to I wanted to have an introduction to this character that was totally unexpected mm -hmm. and also Partly, sort of, because Russell at that stage was looking like such a slob. He had this long, shraggly hair. He's sort of a little overweight, you know. So the idea was, you know, his car is a mess. He's so it just felt like, you know, this is a great way to introduce this character. Russell singing along to this band <laughs> who he loves, and Russell does fancy himself as a bit of a musician. I don't know if you've had him on the show. Uh, not yet, but I know he's he's a big music fan. He's a big music, music and fan. Australian and rugby rules. Two loves his, of his that, life. That's his, that's his and his family, loves. obviously, but yeah. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. <laughs> what they call Great Big C. That's right, yeah. Great Big C. Yes, I think, the, I think the lead singer was a friend of his. That's why he had the tape and he just started playing it. And then we just started filming and doing it, singing along. And I said, sing some more, sing some more. And then we had to phone up. And of course, they asked for a fortune. But luckily, they? <laughs> Mixed well, rates? No, no. Ru no, Russell would be like, he's the kind of person we phone them up and say, just ask for a lot. <laughs> I gave such a great performance that they're going to have to pay you. Yeah. Oh, the night that Patty Murphy died is a night I'll never forget. Some of the boys got loaded drunk and they ain't got sober yet. As long as a bottle was passed around, every man was feeling gay. 
O'Leary came with a bagpipe, some music for the play. That's how they showed their respect for Patty Murphy. That's how they showed their honor and their pride. They said it was a sin and a shame, and they winked at one another. And every drink in the place was full the night Pat Murphy died. As Mrs. Murphy sat in the corner, pouring out her grief, Kelly and his gang came tearing down the street. They went into an empty room and a bottle of whiskey stole. They put the bottle with the corpse to keep that whiskey cold. That's how they showed their respect for Patty Murphy. That's how they showed their honor and their pride. They said it was a sin and shame, and they winked at one another. And every drink in the place was full the night Pat Murphy died. Well, every drink in the place was full the night Pat Murphy died. Just quickly before we finish, going back to that point of, of kind of money and making yeah. a Whitney Houston documentary and the rights to her music. The family were involved in production, and it's just a sister in law's a producer on it. Yes. Yeah. Does, that, does that help in terms of getting. No, the because actually to she didn't. They don't own any own of the any music of okay. because she didn't. They don't have publishing because she didn't write the songs. Mm -hmm. So it's all owned by Sony, which was. Uh, Arista was her original record company, which was Clive Davis's company in yeah. the late 70s and 80s, hugely successful independent company. And then they were bought 15 years ago or something by Sony and in the big conglomeration. And it was a nightmare getting the rights. It took longer than making the film to get the rights. I think because she is like one of the crown jewels and they didn't want to give it away lightly mm. and also just dealing with these big corporations, it's sort of, you would have thought that in the age when everyone's pirating everything, that they would want somebody to come along and say, we're going to pay you a really good amount of money and but we want to clear the rights, let's do it quickly. Mm -hmm. But instead the lawyers and lawyers and the lawyers and it takes forever and ever and ever in a day. But I think they're happy with, they're happy with the movie, they're not bringing out a soundtrack they're going to do a little four-song, little mini-soundtrack album. They didn't want to have a lot of celebratory songs out there, which yeah. I thought was an interesting response, actually, mm -hmm. associated with the film, which they felt was quite sad. And um, they're probably right. Um, Kim, such a pleasure to chat to you. Congratulations Thank on, you. on Whitney. And um, let's try and do part two where we can catch up on all the other stuff. Thank you <laughs> Great, very much. Great, really nice too. to chat. From the soundtrack to Whitney, that's I Wanna Dance With Somebody. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the brilliant Kevin MacDonald. My huge thanks to Kevin for taking the time to talk to us and talking in such great detail about his process behind making a documentary. Whitney is on general release around the world now. 
There's a Spotify playlist for this show via edithbowman.com, which gives you every track that we featured in the podcast in its entirety. And we do that for every show. And please do subscribe there or at iTunes too. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please keep spreading the word as we know you do. Next up, we speak to Pixar royalty and a man who came through the Simpsons School of Training. The one and only Brad Bird joins us. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.